The book Deuteronomy derives its name from the word for second or repetition, deuteros, and namos, which means law. In this book of Deuteronomy, we have a series of sermons and songs from Moses to the people of God. The Holy Spirit gives Moses a repetition of the law, not merely the Ten Commandments, as we find in chapter 5, but also of the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil laws of God delivered elsewhere in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Deuteronomy then is a teaching technique where God summarizes, recaps, and gives you the major points of the previous revelations that he's delivered to us. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel, according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them, after he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Astaroth in Edrei. On this side Jordan in the land of Moab began Moses to declare this law, saying, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you, and take your journey, and go to the mount of the Amorites, and unto all the places nigh thereunto in the plain, in the hills, and in the vale and in the south, and by the seaside, to the land of the Canaanites, and unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. And I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord, God of your fathers, make you a thousand times so many more as ye are, and bless you as he hath promised you. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes and I will make them rulers over you. And ye answered me and said, the thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known and made them heads over you, captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and captains over fifties, and captains over tens, and officers among your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, and the stranger that is with you. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, 
but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which ye should do. And when we departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which ye saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said unto you, Ye are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give unto us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it. As the Lord, God of thy fathers, hath said unto thee, Fear not, neither be discouraged. And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. And the saying pleased me well. And I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe. And they turned and went up into the mountain, and came unto the valley of Eshcol, and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands, and brought it down unto us, and brought us word again, and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God doth give it, or doth give us. Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And ye murmured in your tents, and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. Then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bare thee as a man doth bear his son in all the way that ye went until ye came unto this place. Yet in this thing ye did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in in fire by night to show you by what way ye should go, and in a cloud by day. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth, and swear, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land, which I swear to give unto your fathers, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon unto his children." because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Now also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. 
But as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then ye answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. And when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, ye were ready to go up into the hill. And the Lord said unto me, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest ye be smitten before your enemies. So I spake unto you, and ye would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went presumptuously up into the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in that mountain, came out against you, and chased you as bees do, and destroyed you in Seir, even unto Hormah. And ye returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken to your voice, nor give ear unto you. So ye abode in Kadesh many days, according unto the days that ye abode there. Thus far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word, profitable for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. A very sad tale in this passage, in this first sermon of Moses, verses 1 through 5, we have the date, the location, and the time of this farewell sermon. These are the words it says that Moses spoke. The word words refers to a discourse from the mind, from the reason, the Spirit of God moving him to deliver these doctrines, these sermons, these reasonings, or these discourses to them. Notice the irony in verse 2. It was 11 days' journey from Horeb, that is where they received the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. It was 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Now, how many days had they spent getting to this place? 11? Did they take 11 days from Exodus chapter 20 until Deuteronomy chapter 1? No. 40 years! Notice the irony. It's only an 11 days journey, but you people took 40 years. Why is that? Because they were disobedient. They were unbelieving. They were rebellious. And therefore, they were miserable, taking in 40 years what could have taken 11 days. So God ironically reminds them of this. Verse 3, Moses spake unto the children of Israel, according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. In other words, God gave commandments to Moses in Exodus, in Leviticus, and in Numbers. Now the discourse of Moses in Deuteronomy is to take those laws and to speak according to them to the children of Israel. He's going to exposit them. He's going to give them the major points. He's going to repeat them as a good master, as a good teacher. The moral law is repeated, as I mentioned in chapter 5. The ceremonial laws are repeated the judicial laws are repeated for their commonwealth. All these things is what he's talking about. Moses, it says in verse 5, began to declare this law. This word declare means to make something plain, to make it thoroughly known. Deuteronomy then gives us a key to unlock the rest of the law. That's the point. It's the summary. It's the outline. It's the major points. So as we go back and we read the other books, we have the summary here in Deuteronomy. Some people believe that Deuteronomy is the law, 
that the kings of Judah would recover, that it was kept right there with the Ark of the Testament on the insides of it. It was Deuteronomy that they had there. Deuteronomy was to be read every time they would have their festivals and the king was to read it to the people or the priest was to read it to the people. They were to know the book of Deuteronomy as a basic summary. So we must understand the book of Deuteronomy in this light, that it is a summing up of the rest of the law. It repeats, it restates, and this is a didactic method that God uses, a teaching method, repetition. So let us not grow weary when we hear repetition. Let us who teach learn to summarize, whether we teach ourselves or others, and let us in our teaching appreciate the uh, method of those who will learn by that repetition so that they can hear again and again and we can edify them. Verses 6 through 8 repeats the promise God made concerning the land of Canaan. Now one thing to keep in mind in the prophetic writings, you will often find promises made that have some kind of unspoken stipulation. I will give you this land, you are now going up to possess it. That did not happen, did it? Because the condition is, if you believe what I say, he didn't state that explicitly, but they found out on the tail end, there was a stipulation in God's mind. Yes, I promise you this land and God would fulfill that promise to be sure, but he's not going to give it to a rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people who will not listen to what he says, you see. The promise is there. The promise is given but he's not going to say to a demonic, wicked, and rebellious people, sure, you can have the promise. No. They must believe in the promise. They must embrace it by faith, and they must submit themselves to God's commandments. So it is with us. Verse 8, he says, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give unto them and to their seed after them. These are all the parts of a testament. Here are the goods. There's the land. There is an oath. I have sworn to give you this land. There are the beneficiaries, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is the grant. This is the land I give unto you by swearing. And then there is the succession from them down to you. You see that all the parts of a testament But even in testaments, the testator can say on these conditions, this person cannot enjoy the assets until they fix those conditions. You can actually do that in a last will and testament. Verses 9 through 18, God provides judges. He said, Moses said in verse 9, I am not able to bear you myself alone. We see this in Numbers 11, verses 11 through 14 and verse 17. Notice verse 11, as a good magistrate, Moses says, the Lord, your, the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are and bless you as he hath promised. But wait a second, didn't the multiplication of the people mean that Moses had more trouble? But you see, Moses is what we call disinterested. This is part of loving other people where you don't look to your own benefit And the actions or the desires you have for those that you love, you only think of the others. I wish you well. I wish that you would be blessed. I wish that you would be multiplied. Would that mean that Moses' life got easier? No. And what is the problem in our day? Well, I 
I don't want to have kids. You know, we want dogs. That's our, you know, the little family bumper sticker. Husband, wife, dogs, right? Why is that? Well, because if I have children, that will multiply troubles for me. Guess who's the focus? Me. But notice Moses. If these people multiply, that means more headaches for Moses. And yet he wishes them to be blessed, to be multiplied as God had promised. Not looking to himself, being disinterested concerning himself, but desiring the good of the nation. Superiors are to bless their inferiors. We must wish well to those under our authority, especially if we have charge over saints, godly people, those who profess the faith of Christ. And we must seek to bless them, not merely with words, but also in our deeds. Notice, though, the troubles of Israel, verse 12. He's not idealistic and forgets the fact that there's trouble with these people. No, he does want to bless them, but he also knows that they have cumbrance, burden, and strife. They fought a lot, and they were like bearing a massive burden that was too much to carry. And so he appointed by God's wisdom, wise men, verse 13, men who had understanding, men who had a good reputation, those would be appointed as rulers, he says in verse 13. Now, if you think this through and you read through the New Testament and you ask yourself, well, what are the qualifications of an elder in the New Testament? Moses just gave it, didn't he? He must be known among the people, have a good reputation. He must be wise. He must have understanding. And then the people would take them and present them to Moses, and he would ordain them or make them into elders. This is how church government works in the Old and in the New Testament. The judges then in verse 16 are instructed. They are to hear the causes. They were to judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. Judgment requires careful hearing, does it not? Judgment requires obeying the law as a judge. Judge righteously, he says. And then it also requires not to respect persons. He says, not only should you judge your own people, who else? The stranger who's within your gates. That foreigner who's not like you, who doesn't look like you, who doesn't speak the language that you speak. You must still judge righteously. So I exhort us, let us be careful to hear matters out before we make judgments. This is especially true of authorities, but this is true of all of us. Do all of us make judgments? Yes, all the time. We're constantly judging other people. If we say, well, let's try not to judge, what we're saying is let's try not to be moral or rational beings. Let's be subhuman like an animal. No, we must judge. But God requires, judge in such a way as respects my law, as respects the facts and the justice of the case. Hear the matter out, find out the facts, and find out which laws apply to the facts of that case. Verses 19 through 33, the unbelief and murmuring upon the report of the spies is recounted. Again, giving us repetitions of the books of the Old Testament. This is Numbers he's repeating here, Exodus and Numbers. They, a peop, the people suggested in verse 22, he repeats this, we will send men before us and they shall search out the land. 
This is in Numbers 13, verses 1 through 20. You can read of that there. When the report was brought back, they rebelled, Moses says in verse 26, against the commandment of the Lord your God. Now, why is it that they rebelled? Why did they fight against God? It's because they didn't believe. We see this in Psalm 106, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 3. They did not believe the gospel. The gospel was presented to them. And rather than mixing that with faith, they hardened their hearts and did not believe the promise of God. So when we see rebellion, we see the fruit of unbelief. That's what rebellion is. I do not believe what you say, God. So I will not do what you tell me to do. In fact, it's worse. Verse 27. This is what they said. Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt. Now, is that true? No. It's the exact opposite of the the facts of the case. God loved them and he loved their forefathers. And therefore, he made promise to bring them out of cruel bondage. And they see it as God's hatred. They see it as him trying to destroy them. Do you see what unbelief does to us? It makes reality upside down. We can't understand things as they actually are. But rather through this satanic lens of unbelief. And note, it's their pride that made them unbelieving. They were too high up. God required them to go down. And so who had to be at fault? God had to be at fault in their minds. Because in order for me to be righteous, God has to be in the wrong. That's what they're thinking. That's what pride says. Me right, God wrong. So their pride, their unbelief, and their blasphemy are all related. What else is mixed into this stew of wickedness? Verse 28. Notice what they say. Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. Was that true? Well, in a manner of speaking, it was, wasn't it? When the spies came back, what did they say? Great, wonderful, look at this fruit. It's amazing, but there are problems. There are difficulties. There are giants. There are walls up to heaven. Did they discourage their hearts? Yes, they did. But notice... This is part of biblical ethics. When we are foolish, unbelieving, have hardness in our hearts, whose fault is that? It's my fault, isn't it? If I'm unbelieving and I'm discouraged, though someone else is the person who brought me to that information and told me about the walls and we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, I'm at fault. But whom do they blame? Those people over there, they're the problem. They discouraged our hearts. The spies are the issue. No. Unbelief and hardness of heart. That's the issue. But blaming other people goes hand in hand with unbelief, doesn't it? It also strokes our pride. I'm not the problem. They're the problem. This is instinctive and fallen human nature. I'm righteous, therefore if I did something wrong, it's somebody else's fault. But did God agree with them? Well, 
Sort of, yeah. God blames the spies as well, doesn't he? But he also blames the people for not believing in his promises, for not obeying his commands. God does not accept their blame shifting. The beginning of true faith then and repentance is to accept our own moral culpability, the righteous demands of God's law, and our personal inability to keep it. Now see, you will not repent if you don't think you've sinned. If you blame someone else for your sins, you will not repent. You build a wall against repentance and say, no, I don't want to repent. It's their fault. I don't need to repent. So what's the key? Well, humble yourself. Acknowledge, if you're wrong, you're wrong. Yes, they may be wrong as well. But that doesn't release you, does it? The Bible presents ethics in this light, 100-100, not 50-50. Well, if they do their part, then I have to do my part. No. If they fail to do their part, God still says, you do your part, or else. Pride says, that's 50-50. If my husband isn't perfectly obedient to the commands of Christ, and he doesn't love me completely, I don't have to submit to him. If my wife nags me and is disobedient, I don't have to love her. Is that what God says? <laughs> no. That's what little children say. Why'd you steal his toy? Because he smacked me. Well, which is, do you have a justification to steal the toy because your brother or your sister smacked you? Or they said meanie words to you and that hurt your feelings? But that's what we say, isn't it? The other person did something, and therefore I'm not at fault. And then repentance is pushed away. We must beware then of self-justification, blame-shifting, pride, environmentalism. Not the kind where you hug trees, but the kind where you say, my ethics are determined by my environment. My moral responsibility changes because things in the world are not the way that they should be, and therefore, who can hold me responsible? I'm just a victim here of my environment. If we do justify ourselves, if we are like them and shift blame, if we are filled with pride and we believe the dogma of environmentalism, our hearts will be hardened. It will turn us away from God. It will bar up the door to repentance and therefore for the forgiveness of our sins. Moses says in verse 29, notice, Then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. This is the duty. The inferiors are frantic. They're vacillating. They're uncertain about what they're going to do. What should the superior do? Oh, tell me how you feel. Come on. Maybe I could kind of make you think you shouldn't do that without telling you that. How about that? Is that what he does? No. A direct rebuke. Stop being afraid. That's what dread not means. Do not fear at all. Do not fear them, though they are greater than you. Then he encourages them. Verse 30. He shall fight for you. The Lord, he says, shall fight for you according to what? All that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Do you have experience of God's goodness? Have you seen him give you good things and you say, well, not like them? Oh, really? Who is it that brought you out of your mother's womb? 
Do you have a Bible in your lap? Who gave that to you? Who gave us the means of grace? Who sent his son so that sinners could be reconciled to God? Has God been good to you and to me? Yes, he has. Remind yourself of these things, and those who are in authority must remind their inferiors. Yes, we must rebuke, but we must also encourage with the truth of God's word. There is hope for you. You've seen him do it in the past. He will do it yet in the future. Verse 32, the sad story, yet in this thing ye did not believe the Lord your God. That's the problem, isn't it? They didn't remember. They forgot. They'd seen it with their own eyes and they said, well, you know, it's, it's different now. God's changed his mind. No. They were to remind themselves, feed upon the promises and faithfulness of God God then in verses 34 through 46 gives his sentence. He is the judge. He sees their unbelief. He sees their disobedience. And he sentences them to wander. Not 11 days to get to where they are. 40 long years. Not one of these men, he says, of this evil generation shall see the good land. This promise was made good. God did give them the land, but not to a rebellious, stiff-necked, blame-shifting, unbelieving people. He's not going to give it to them. But there's an exception. One man who wholly followed the Lord. He believed what God had promised. Remember that. It first mentions only Caleb. We later find out Joshua agreed. He was persuaded by Caleb. But one of the spies stands up and says, you're all wrong. God made promise. We can strike them. We can win. The land is ours. Let's go. He wholly followed the Lord. The dangers, whether apparent or real dangers, were not an obstacle to him to believe in God's word. Verse 37, Moses says, The Lord was angry with me for your sakes. Now, was Moses provoked by the people? Yes. But notice, Moses acknowledges something. God was angry with whom? With you for provoking me? He says, God was angry with me. Moses accepts responsibility. That he was at fault because God said, speak to the rock. Now before, Moses had done what to get water out of the rock? He struck it, didn't he? So the second time, does he obey the word of the Lord? No, he gets angry with these people and says, Here, you rebels. He strikes the rock. Yes, Moses was at fault. The Lord was angry with Moses. The Lord cursed Moses for not sanctifying God in the midst of the people of God. He held him to a high standard, and Moses recognizes this. But Joshua is to come, verse 38, He shall cause Israel to inherit it. Now, there are many who believe that the Bible and the scriptures written by Moses and all the prophets after that, and even into the New Testament, they believe the whole Bible is a covenant where two parties agree, and you must fulfill your terms of the obligations you have under the covenant. Covenant means coming together. It's where various parties come together and put together the terms under which their arrangement works. All all sides then have duties to fulfill. 
And certainly that is one of the themes of the Bible. But notice here, if you look for the word inherit in your Old Testament, what will you find? Well, it's everywhere. The word inheritance means I have a son that I either begat or I adopted into my family, and I would like to pass on my goods, my land, my gold, my silver, my cattle. I want to pass on those goods to my son. That's called an inheritance. Joshua is the executor of the estate. God has an estate. Did you know that? God owns all things. But here, in a special way, he owned the land of Canaan. And he said, you are going to cause my heirs to inherit my goods. They're going to receive the land. And Joshua is appointed as the executor of the estate. Not Moses. Joshua. Your children, verse 39, he says, They shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. There will be a succession. You beneficiaries are not worthy to receive the goods. It's going to go to the next generation. The ones you said would be a prey. Ah, but they repented, didn't they? Much like Saul repented to David. Verse 41, he answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord. Now let's go sin some more. That's what they're saying. God said, don't go up and fight. Stay 40 years. None of you are going to make it into the land. And they say, we have sinned. Now we're going to do our own will. Now we're going to do what we want, even though you told us not to. But they call it obedience. Now we're going to do what the Lord said according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. That's what they say. The Geneva Bible says in its notes, this declares man's nature who who will do that which God forbids and will not do that which he commands. But they call it doing it what God commands, don't they? That's our nature, isn't it? So corrupt. God says, do this. Oh, no, I don't want to. We'll do that. Or no, now you can't do it. And they say, yeah, now we'll do it. Okay, now that you told me not to do it, I'm going to do it. You see that? Contrary. Contrary to God. This is man's fallen nature. Let us repent of a contrary spirit. One which opposes God's law and his truth spoken by others and will instinctively oppose rather than submit to truth. You know, if you meet one person, they tell you A, and you say non-A, I don't believe that. Then you go to a person over here, and they say non-A, then you say A. You can do an exercise with little children. Is to, is not. I've done this with little children sometimes. They'll be saying, it is to, and I say, is not. And then they say, is to, and then I say, yes, it is. And then they say, what? Is not. Change their position. Why? Because they're contradicting me, right? This is what human nature does to God. He says, do this. No, I'm not going to do it. Now you can't do that. Okay, now I'll do it. You see that? We must not have that contrarian spirit. We must have true repentance and confession of our sins, not saying, yeah, I was wrong. Now I'm going to go disobey some more, covering up for our new sin as if we were confessing to an old Moses says, verse 42, don't go up. God's not with you. 
And we must seek for that, shouldn't we? To hear that God will not listen to you or God is not with you is the worst thing you could hear. But that's what they heard. But did they listen? Did they follow through on that claim that they were going to do all that the Lord their God commanded them? No. They went up, Moses says, presumptuously, like a pot that boils over. Try to put a lid on it and stop that from happening. It's not going to work. It's going to push the lid off. It's going to spill out. Doesn't matter. Insolent, presumptuous, disobedient, contrarian. And then they come back after their defeat. And they seem surprised, don't they? They're weeping. They returned and wept before the Lord. And you know, God's weeping over the banisters of heaven, the Arminians tell us, waiting for people to repent, isn't he? No, he's not. It's a different God. But the Lord would not hearken to your voice, nor give ear unto you. God says, if you walk contrary to me... I will walk contrary to you. If you will not hear my voice, I will not hear your voice. This is why the Apostle James says that we must cleanse our hands. We must humble ourselves before the mighty God and he will lift us up. If we exalt ourselves presumptuously and we think that we can cloak our sins with a fake confession of sins and we can blame others for our sins, God says, I'm not going to listen to you. This is a very sad sentence, is it not? Let us then avoid the sins, the root causes, the unbelief, the pride, the contrariness, the blaming of others, the lack of self-condemnation. Because all these things lead to destruction. And thus far, Deuteronomy chapter 1, a chapter filled with instruction.